So welcome here. <laughs> and uh, my name is Cyrus. I'm the lead pastor here. And growing up, I had a cat. And his name was Kitty. <laughs> yeah, it was Kitty. And his real name was Rocky, because I wanted a strong name, but his actual name that he came to was Kitty, and I probably didn't realize how that sounded. He was a good cat, and I got him in grade two, and he was with me until I was in graduate school. So he was my cat growing up, and we loved him. And he had a personality that was tailored to mine, because he grew up with me. So we fought a lot, and I had scratches going to school almost every day. And uh, they were well-deserved. And as he got older, he became a cat that is very much like most older cats. And he became quite stubborn. Even more stubborn than cats typically are. I remember one time I was at camp, Camp Arness, and we had taken Kitty there uh, quite a few times. And he had gotten lost in the forest more than once. One time, he became so desperate that he actually swam out to people in the lake. <laughs> so he still needed people, even though he never let me know that he needed people. He did need people. Didn't want anybody to know that. And one time, because of this, I decided to take him for a walk because we wouldn't let him out anymore, even though he was an outside cat and he was used to being outside just on his own. It was the days before the bylaws around cats. It was the wilds of North Kildonan suburbs for him. <laughs> and he would often come back, you know, having been in monstrous fights, and I was very proud of him. And every time he came back with a bird, I was very proud of him. And uh, so because he kept getting lost at Camp Arness, however, he didn't know how to get his way back there, I put him on a leash. Yeah. <laughs> I put him on a leash. I don't know if any of you have tried to walk a cat. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you maybe you can imagine. You need a harness because they really don't want to be in it. And I remember putting him in a harness and saying, okay, kitty, let's go. <laughs> and then he just... <laughs> and then I would pull and pull and go... I got about five feet. <laughs> it was painful. It was like I was dragging him around the campground. So this is my cat, very stubborn, and more and more stubborn as he got older. And when I got into graduate school, I took my favorite course in graduate school, which was behavior modification. <laughs> now, some of you may know what behavior modification is all about. There's a whole course on it. And the, and the basics of behavior modification is if you like something, do something good, give them a treat after they do it, and that behavior will increase. You took the course. And I was excited about this course and my newfound power over the world and over people. And I remember coming home and there was nobody because I spent all of my time studying and all I had was Kitty looking back at me, and he became my new challenge. 
I knew that old dogs couldn't learn new tricks. And I thought, maybe I can train Kitty. <laughs> so my new goal became, this cat is going to roll over. <laughs> this became months, a multiple month long project for me. And my parents still hear the sound of roll over. <laughs> still sends shivers through the family. <laughs> and I started with sit, and Kitty did learn to sit. Sit, and then I would make him sit. And eventually he got to the place where he would sit. But he never sat the way I wanted him to sit. <laughs> he would like, I am going to sit now, but I wanted to anyway. <laughs> <laughs> very reluctant. I went through a lot of treats. It was lucky he was an outside cat, otherwise he would have been a very big cat. So I eventually did get him to sit, and I eventually got him to lay down. And over the weeks, I would get him to lay down, and then I would push on his shoulders, and like roll him over and say, roll over. And I would roll him over. And over time, I would use less and less force with my hands to roll him over. And eventually, I was just pushing on his shoulder and doing a little twirl with my hand <laughs> and a certain expression and tone, and he would roll over. And eventually, then, I would just move towards his shoulders, do my wave and he would roll over and then one day one glorious day I said roll over and Kitty reluctantly slowly and snobbishly <laughs> rolled over wow. yes well thank you thank you thank you thank you it was a great day and I thought that I had trained Kitty to roll over. I thought I had done that. I was standing in the kitchen one day, and I opened up a certain cupboard, cupboard where I later thought there were treats in that cupboard. That's the treat cupboard. And I turned around, and there was Kitty sitting there looking at me. And I didn't say anything. I was just Kitty was sitting on the kitchen floor. And all of a sudden, magically, he laid down, and he rolled over, all on his own. And I was so excited. And I said, Kitty rolled over. And I went around, and right there, there were the treats. I hadn't put this together yet. And I, I, I got the treat for him, and I gave him a treat. And then I had a sinking feeling inside. <laughs> I hadn't trained Kitty. Kitty had trained me. <laughs> I want to talk today about motivation. <laughs> and motivation is very tricky because there's a lot of things that contribute to motivation. There's a lot of things that contribute to motivation. But the basis of being motivated, if you talk to a psychologist, is these basic drives that are, I would say, are God-given. We have these drives inside. 
There's debates about what to call these drives and how to categorize these drives. People talk about instincts, people talk about basic drives, they call them drives, and survival, and uh, you know, arousal levels and keeping ourselves at the right level. But there are these basic things that are given to us by God that compel us forward. If I was to, and these, and these basic drives have levels. They have, some are more important than others. So for example, if I was to take away your food, you would eventually be upset about that. But then, as upset you are, as you are about not having food, if I was all of a sudden to take away your water, your concerns about food would slowly drift away and you would want water instead. And as much and as upset as you are about me taking away your water, if I was to take away your air, the concerns about water would evaporate from your mind and you would instantly have a huge drive and motivation to get air. So there's a hierarchy. We want some things more than we want others. Even, and we're not aware of them all the time because they're being met. We're not aware, unless I mention it, that, we're aware, that we need air until all of a sudden you can't get any. And then this drive becomes palpable to you and compels you forward. And those are three basic drives, but there's more. There are many drives and people try to categorize them. If you have too much stress, you have a drive to reduce your stress. If you have too little stress, you have a drive to not be bored anymore. You want to increase your stress. We have a drive, a natural, inborn, God-given drive to be with people. It's different for different people, but it's there, an attachment drive that compels people forward. And if you're alone, you can feel it more strongly. Teaching a dog to sit or come or get a stick isn't always easy but it's a lot easier than training a dog to not bark. I felt like I could train anybody to do anything, but we are biologically, or you could say by God, prepared to learn and need certain things more than others. So there's this biological drive in a dog to bark or eat. So if it's impressive to get a dog to sit, but if you can put a treat on their nose and get them not to eat it, that's really impressive. That's really impressive. So it's not just about the rewards, but the rewards are based on these foundational drives. I could train Kitty by petting him, and that would be getting his attachment drive going. But cats don't have a very strong attachment drive. And rolling over is difficult for a cat to do because they're very independent and they have to be submissive for it. But cats like treats. They like fish. That need is higher on the scale for them. So training Kitty to roll over, which was very challenging, I needed to use a very powerful need in order to get that cat to do that. And it took a long time. It was a difficult training process. And it's the same for us. If I was to reward you, I would choose the most powerful need I could. If you were torturing somebody, you could use air. That's what this is based on. You could reward them with air. 
and they become very willing to do whatever you're asking. I didn't expect to talk about torture, sorry about that. <laughs> that was a little morbid. Let's move on to the next point. What was the next point? <laughs> okay, so needs are rewards. We have needs, and if you ever see somebody being rewarded for something, usually you can trace it back to... Sorry, if you, have, if you ever see somebody being rewarded for something, you can trace it back to a need, to a basic drive, somehow. So I challenged myself and I said, let's, let's try some examples of this that are maybe less obvious. What about chocolate? Chocolate's a little bit tricky. How is that a biological drive to have chocolate? Well, it's tricky until you watch a survival show. Because if you watch a survival show, which I indulge in at times, I like, it, I like a good survival show, you find out that fat although plentiful in a North American society, is very challenging to find in nature. Very challenging to find. You can have protein poisoning in nature. You can have all the meat in the world and still die. You can die eating rabbits. And the cure for protein poisoning is probably a few different things, but primarily it's fat. So when I was watching these survival shows, they weren't just trying to kill animals. They were picking seasons and times when they could get fat animals. And I was always wondering, why? Why are they passing up on this animal when they wanted that one? And they would say, this is the season when all the female deer have all their fat ready for, for calves. We've got to get them now because then we can have fat. Sounds a little dark. But they need, they need the fat in order to stave off the protein poisoning. And it's the same with fruit. Why, why is sugar so prized? It's because in nature, it's challenging to get. The same with salt. So now you take these things that are, we're biologically prepared to seek after as because they're challenging, and you put them in a society where they're free-flowing, and you get Pringles and Toblerone and all of these things, which they're using against us. <laughs> we are biologically prepared for Toblerone. And I am motivated. <laughs> what about video games? Not as obvious, but people are driven to have video games. There's a few things for video games. First of all, not all children are addicted to video games. Children who are addicted to video games are more likely to have social issues, to have anxiety socially or have something else that's going on. If you take a, a child who's having difficulty with those things and then you give them a video game, you have something that takes them from a high-stress position and distracts them into equilibrium. If you take somebody who's having difficulty achieving in the world and you give them a video game, you have this distilled experience of achievement, this, di this distilled experience of accomplishment and honor. I had trouble getting a job, but yesterday I saved the world. <laughs> and it's distilled just in the same way that chocolate and Pringles are distilled. Or take cocaine. When you have cocaine, you have this hit in your brain. And it's the same hit that you have when you fall in love. We're taking something that's natural and designed 
to help us to populate the earth, God's command. And then they take it, and they distill it, and they use it against us. And people are very motivated for those kinds of things. Now there's one thing that some of these needs kind of combine to fulfill, but is also separate from the hierarchy, I think, which is our spiritual need, which is an attachment need. We want to be attached. But I feel like it's understudied, and I feel like it's somewhat separate from our need for attachment with other people. Because Adam had as much spiritual attachment as a man could have, and he still felt alone. So I do believe it's separate, but I believe it's kind of linked. So there's a spiritual need. And what's interesting is I think it's separate from the hierarchy, because if I was to take away your air, you would think that every other thought would escape from you. I remember I was going to get my wisdom teeth out, and it was my first major surgery. And I was concerned because my professor had had her wisdom teeth out, and sorry if you're getting your wisdom teeth out, um, and her <laughs> tongue on the right side or left, I forget which, but on one side was paralyzed because of the surgery. So I went up to my surgeon and I said, what is your rate of success? <laughs> Have you ever had this happen to you? And he politically said, I've done a lot of surgeries. And he left it at that. <laughs> and so did I. Until I was sitting on a chair, having some kind of chemical, I don't know what, flowing, putting, being put into my blood. And it came to me that as I fell asleep, I might never wake up. And that this man that I might have offended... had a knife. <laughs> and as I started to lose my sense of reality, I started pleading. <laughs> I started pleading with him. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm sure you're a great guy. I'm sure you're a great surgeon. Don't hurt me. I don't remember exactly what I said. And then... As every other need passed away, and I, I came to my spiritual need, and I thought, am I getting into heaven? I'm supposed to have assurance. But in that moment, all of a sudden, I didn't. And I thought, who got into heaven? Who got into heaven? Who got into heaven? The man at the cross, the guy at the cross got into heaven. The thief at the cross got into heaven. And I said, what did he do? What did he do? What did he do? And I said... God, you didn't deserve it. <laughs> you didn't deserve it. And then I woke up. <laughs> and I promptly got the nurse upset with me as well. Because she said, you're not allowed to have anything but clear fluids. And I was still somewhat delirious. And I said, what about vodka? It was a good thing my mother was there because she actually got quite upset at me. <laughs> he was joking. He was joking. He doesn't drink that much. <laughs> so we have these levels of need. We have these levels of need. But even if your air is being taken away, 
And sometimes, particularly if your heir is being taken away, your spiritual need can come to the forefront. Actually, sometimes if we're more comfortable, we start to forget about our spiritual need. It's important for us to know that our spiritual need is different from the rest and can sometimes be forgotten, but at the most important times, we realize that it's there. And, like all the other needs that we have, can be supremely motivating. I am talking about motivation today. It can be supremely motivating to talk about your spiritual need. If you want to be motivated in various things in your life, what you want to do, or one strategy, because there's lots of strategies, but one strategy is to take a primal need, emphasize it, harness it, and use it towards something else that you want to do. When Kitty got up and said, I'm hungry, he wasn't thinking that he was going to roll over. But I harnessed it, his primal need for kitty treats. <laughs> Packaged it, doled it out in small doses, and drove him to do something completely unnatural. And we can use this power for good. We can use it to help ourselves do amazing things. So I wanted to come up with an example a biblical example to show you how this can be used in the Bible. And it's a little bit challenging, particularly if you want to do New Testament. Because unfortunately, or fortunately, because it's the Bible, so it's always fortunately, fortunately, the New Testament is written in letters. So in the Old Testament, you have these nice lifelong stories. And in the New Testament, you have these snippets. So it's tough to talk about somebody's life course and how they maybe have used rewards to motivate themselves. But if you're diligent, you can find it. Around A.D. 54, Paul began talking about his drive and his motivation. And I'll summarize here in 1 Corinthians. That was about when that letter was written. It's an earlier part of his life. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, verse 25. For an imperishable crown... Therefore, I run. I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. Lest, when I have preached to others, I myself become, should become disqualified. Why is he doing it? He's doing it for a crown. And he's motivating himself to run, to do something unnatural. I am disciplining myself. I am subjecting myself in order to do something that wouldn't naturally happen, but I know there's a crown. And I am going to run this race, because then I'm not going to be the one disqualified. Maybe I preach and everybody else gets in, and what about me? I want my crown. It doesn't sound very Christian, does it? But it, that's why I'm talking about this. Anyway, so he's going for a crown. This is Paul. He knows what he's talking about, right? But here he is, serving God for a reward. A.D. 55. One year later. It was 54 before. Now it's 55. Acts 20, 24. And he writes again. And I'll summarize. Chapter 20, verse 24. 
so that I may finish my race, he's talking about the race again, with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. He's still talking about this race that he's on. In his mind, for himself, he's running a race. This isn't natural. A race is unnatural. (laughs) Natasha likes to run and I don't. (laughs) You have to use extremely powerful motivators to get yourself to do it. It's not a basic drive. And he likens it to a race, to something that's hard and takes perseverance. And he needs a reward. He doesn't talk about the reward there. But he's still on the race a year later, AD 55. AD 62. Philippians 3. I do not count, I don't, this is verse 13. I do not count myself to have apprehended. Sorry, my light on here is very dark. I was saving battery, but now I can use it. Okay. I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, verse 14, I press towards the goal for the prize. doesn't say crown here, but it's a prize. For the prize of the upward calling of God. He's still running, AD 62, Philippians 3. So he starts by talking about this race. I discipline my body. Continues to talk about the race all the way from AD 54 to AD 62. And then he begins preaching, he begins teaching the next generation. He starts talking to Timothy. Timothy, I need to teach you what to do because I'm not going to be here much longer. Second Timothy. Second letter to Timothy. Timothy, I'm not going to be here much longer. I need to teach you so that you can take over, so that you can have your time in ministry. And he says, in 2 Timothy 4.8, I have finished the race. I have finished the race, verse 8. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. Wouldn't that be amazing if you could track your rewards in heaven? If you had a dashboard on your car of life and you could see, not quite there, not quite there. Timothy, I've actually run the race. I've finished my race. And I got it. I just have to go through a little bit of martyrdom. (laughs) But don't worry about that. That's just going to be a second. And I am going to have something that lasts forever. God has given me a crown. I got it, Timothy. And I want you to get it too. So run the race, Timothy. Discipline your body. And keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize. There's a crown 
There are crowns and not everybody gets them. In the chair with the wisdom teeth, the need for a crown did disappear from my head. At that point, I was happy to get in. <laughs> but Paul, when he was in probably a cell, but I don't know for sure, I should have looked it up. He was sitting there in a little bit more of a relaxed state, and God was talking to him about what he had waiting for him. You get to experience a little bit of heaven before you come. You get to experience a little bit. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Behavior modification was capturing a biblical truth. The Bible and God did not learn about rewards from behavior modification. Behavior modification saw something that God put in our hearts. Rewards. Sometimes... Christians can feel a little bit uncertain about rewards. Does it make you a little bit uncomfortable for me to talk about rewards? Doesn't it do that a little bit? For most Christians, it does. And it made my cat uncomfortable, too. My cat didn't like rewards. He still rolled over, but he didn't acknowledge that I was the one who had a place over him and was able to give rewards. My cat wanted to be in control. If you have children and you take them and you have one clown doing somersaults and you have another clown doing jumping jacks, And you have one clown, let's say, somersaults, has candy. And he's giving candy to the jumping jack clown. Not eating any, but he's giving it to the jumping jack clown. Who are the children going to imitate? Do they want the candy? Or do they want to give the candy? Children want to give the candy. I don't want to get rewards. I don't want to be under you, God, getting rewards. I want to be the one giving them out. Okay, maybe I'll sit down, but I was going to do it anyway. I was going to do it for a bigger purpose. Okay, you're right. I do want the treat. But not really. Not really. We want to be the ones giving it out. And God made us that way. He wants us to be his children. He wants us to get to a place where, we, where he can give us the bag. And that's quite the reward. Here, you get the bag now. You can give them out. 
should do a whole sermon on unevenness of God. He never just gives out the candy. He always gives it to one of us and then asks them to give it out. And it's a test for both. It's a test to get the bag and give it out. And it's a test to not get the bag and take it. Both test the heart. Both test the heart. I believe that accepting and going after and acknowledging that God is in control and is the one handing out rewards and built us to want them is an act of humility. You have to have a humble heart to realize that you are a weak, needy person and that you need all the help you can get. You need all the help you can get. And God has given us help. He has given us rewards that we can read about and learn about and motivate ourselves with. So please don't reject them. Because you will get farther if you do it God's way. You will get farther if you accept his rewards, if you learn about his rewards. Now, when we get the rewards, then you can be humble. Then you can be humble. You get to heaven, he gives you a crown. And what do the elders do when they get the crown? They throw it at his feet. I want a crown. And I want to throw it at his feet. And I'm going to use everything I can get, everything God will give me, in order to get myself to a place where I can throw my crown down at his feet. And if he designed me to want a crown, who am I to ignore it? Who am I to say, I can do it my own way? It helps a little bit if you realize what a crown is. A crown is not your ability to hold it in front of others and say, ha ha. That's what rewards are now, aren't they? Like they, often when you get power, power is the ability to say, I did better than you. I did better, ha ha ha. And so why would we want that? Of course we don't want that. But you need to realize what a crown is. You need to realize how powerful these rewards are. And when you start to understand them better, you're going to want one. God said to Abram, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I am your reward. Every time you see a reward, even if it doesn't look like it, it's accessing a primal drive to be close to God. That's the drive. We want to be with him. And every reward in its foundation has access and intimacy with the Lord. Why do I want a crown? It might be a lesser motivation of power over others, but that's not what it's really talking about. In heaven, we're not going to lord things over other people. In heaven, that crown is going to be him Ooh, looking at me and saying, I saw you. Thank you. Come and rule with me. I want to be close to you. And I want you to be close to me. And I want you to get a crown so that I can talk to you about helping other people. And because you did it when you couldn't see me. You did it when it was hard, when you were looking through a glass darkly. You came to me and you sought after me. And I want you near me now when it's obvious to everybody, but I know you did it in secret. 
I'm going to reveal more to you. I'm going to reveal how to rule with me, how God does it, how I do it. And you, like it's an honor to be a doorkeeper in the Lord's temple in heaven. But I want to be as close to him as I can get. I want to rule with him. And I want to run the race. That's the drive, by the way. That's the drive. And then it gets more complicated. How do you actually do that? How do you take that motivation to be with the Lord and subjugate it to his path? You don't want to do it the New Age way. You want to do it his way. What other rewards does he have? I want to study this in depth, but just to list some, to show you the intimacy, I'm going to give you a rock. I'm going to give you a stone. And it's going to have a secret name. This is my reward to you. And what a reward, a stone. I'm going to give you a stone, and it's going to have a name on it. And only you, and only I, am going to have that name. Is that to lord it over other people? I got a stone, look at my name. I can't even tell you what my name is. I'm going to give you a stone with a name, and it's just for you, and it's just for me. It's just for you, and it's just for me. Why would you want a stone like that? Because you want to be with him. Because you want to look in his eyes and you want to hear him say your name. And you want to know who he's talking to when he says it. And I don't know what's in that name, but I want to know what he's going to call me, Lord willing. I want to know, and I don't want to get there and find out, you did good, Cyrus. You got in, and I love you so much. And I don't want him to have to wipe away any more tears than are necessary. I don't want to have regrets. Not because they got a stone and I didn't, but because I could have had a stone with him. And he's so beautiful. So, I love my cat. but I want to be a dog. <laughs> I don't want to like have the reward work kind of. I'll roll over. Fine, you're right. I want the treat. I want to be a dog and I want to be there and I want to be looking at him and I want to be saying, I want to do it your way. You got something for me. <laughs> What's in your pocket? <laughs> when I get to heaven, I want to be like that dog where their master just got home. Ooh, I've been thinking about you all day. <laughs> I don't want to do it my way. You're I love you. I got no shame. Here's my belly. <laughs> okay, so do we want rewards? We want rewards. Not every reward, but we want his. He wrote them down. He wrote them down for us. They are promises, people. 
They are promises. Jesus, oh, we love you so much. We love you so much. You are our great reward. And because of you, I want to transform my life. I want to transform things that don't seem related to you, but are things that you want. And I want to use you at everything that you've given me. Every secret word, every word from the Bible to motivate myself to live the way that you've designed us to live. To live the way that you've designed us to live. And I'm going to do it your way. Amen.